I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right. Well, we're back. Seth, great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, a lot's on, happened since our last episode. It has been. It's been too long as well. That <laughs> is 99% my fault. Well, you know, we understand because uh, for those that, that may not know this, uh, you just completed your doctorate. Yeah, I am done. I graduated. Dr. Seth Trout. Do you get sick of people calling you that as a joke? It's funny if for each, <laughs> each person gets one bullet. You know, they can use it once and it's funny. And then it's, we can move on now. Is there any part of you that kind of thinks you would like to be known as Dr. Seth Trout? Maybe only to teenagers, like undergraduate <laughs> students who think they know better than me. Like if I was okay. going to teach in an undergraduate setting, I'd be Dr. Trout. So at some point you're going to probably write a book based on some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. Will, you, will that book be by Dr. Seth Trout or just Seth Trout? I think that publishers decide those types of things. Oh, well, what would you prefer? I'd prefer Seth Trout. Oh, okay. Why is that? I don't know. I think people who, all the people that I know that I have a lot of respect for don't insist on their formal title being used. Yeah. Whether it's sir or mister or doctor. Hmm. It's in the people who tend to be the most uh, dependent on the title for their sense of security. (laughs) Really lean on the title. Yeah. And so I'd like to hope that I'm secure enough not to need the people to refer to me as a title. Yeah, you didn't really do it for the title. So Well, it's the same way I feel when people call me Pastor way. Seth on Sunday. Uh-huh. I try tend to say like you can call me Seth. Like that yeah. the over formality I think kind of creates a wall in the relationship. Hmm. Not it doesn't like it doesn't serve to connect. It serves to separate. Interesting. So that's what we are talking about uh today and over the next number of episodes is we want to talk about your your doctoral dissertation and um and I think it's going to be really interesting. I, I love the conversations you and I have had about it. I haven't had a chance to read it. Hopefully uh, by the time we record the next episode, I will have actually had a chance to read it or some of it or whatever. I know that there's lots of footnotes you're still polishing and things like that. But um, but yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. So give everybody the title of the dissertation All right. uh, first. The title is Digitization and Neodostism, a Qualitative Analysis of Generation Z's Understanding of Their Bodies in Light of Expanding Digital Existences. All right. Did the publisher pick that title? Absolutely not. You picked that title. I picked that title. <laughs> okay. You are the publisher of this thing, so yeah. So yeah. that's pretty great. The so se- The seminary approved it, so I'm yeah. not 100% on the hook. So over the next few episodes, we're not going to talk about every one of those terms, but we'll talk about a few of those. But um, put it in kind of, you know, one of the things that I actually think is, is one of the ways the Lord has gifted me to some degree, and I, I see you growing in this too, is, is the ability to translate, to take things that are complex and big and to try to make them more um, understandable in kind of the everyday use. And so if you were to translate that title a bit and kind of go, you know, when the average person goes, all right, what did you write about? What, what, do you, what would you say? So I would say how uh, social media use affects the way that the younger generation views their body and how their body is related to what it means to be a person. Okay. And so the digitization has to do with the ever-expanding amount of screens, both especially through personal smartphone use. And neodostism comes from the word docetism, which comes from the word dikeo in Greek, which means appear. 
And so docetism was a first century heresy that taught that Jesus did not come in the flesh. He just came in the appearance of the flesh. And so it, what, that was what theologians would call Christological docetism. It's a heresy. But kind of what I'm looking at is a neo-docetism, which would be an anthropological or or a human-oriented docetism, okay. which is this view that people's bodies, they tend to treat them as just their uh, their appearance, not them. Yeah. Like, that's so, not so, me. That's just what I look like. And that that idea of that there's a true you is becoming worse yeah. or it's changing in some ways in the minds and the hearts and the souls of yeah, basically next generation because of all this digital technology. Yeah, a lot of this whole, how could you have a person say, I am a man trapped in a woman's body? What that, what that's a neo that's evidence of neo-dostism. This yeah. view that the true me is my psychology or yeah. the true me is my cognition, my thoughts, and my body is just the holder of me. Mm-hmm. And if the body is just the holder of me, then there is real possibility that I could be in the wrong holder. Sure. But if I am my body, which is more of a biblical view, that mm-hmm. your body is you, you're your body, and the body and soul are not as divisible as the dualists or the neodostists want it to be. And so the, the really kind of intense way of saying this to parents is your kids, the more your kids use a smartphone, the more likely they are to get a gender reassignment surgery. <laughs> that is one way to put it. Um, and yet your, your stuff, I don't think is all related to transgenderism. It, it's very much also about how um, even people who remain in their, you know, bodily assigned gender still deal with this dynamic. So. Yeah. A lot of it is the way that even Christians participate in uh, propagating or normalizing a worldview that makes the idea of um, gender transition surgery possible when we devalue our bodies and when we say my body's not me, my body, I am my soul, my body holds my soul. Yeah. And so even though we may have a quote conservative view of uh, sex and gender, our view of our bodies and the way we talk about our bodies to our kids, to our friends, to our neighbors might actually serve to promote the worldview that makes hmm. interesting those things possible. Yeah. Well, this is going to be fun. We're going to have some fun conversations on this. And I feel like you put so much work into it that to try to sum it up in one conversation probably uh, doesn't make a ton of sense. And so it seems to me like the three streams that are coming together in this are a kind of theology of the body, which you've already touched on a bit. And I think we'll go there mostly in this conversation. And then Gen Z what are the dynamics specifically around that generation and then digitization, which it sounds like especially related to social media. So lots of fun things we can talk about. I'm curious kind of on the front end of this, how did you decide this topic? Like I know you had a bunch of different ideas. Um, you know, and my, my sense is as someone pursues a doctorate is they want you to push into something that there's not a great deal of work done on, right? You can't just do a bunch of stuff everyone else has already done before. There has to be some sort of unique contribution. Yeah, whenever you are doing research like this, one, it's pretty painful because you have these big ideas. And so uh, one of the things that you get coached on, there's a lady named Dr. Tasha Chapman who oversees the dissertation process at Covenant in St. Louis. Uh, she does a really good job the way you push into getting really specific. You know, I wanted to do theology of the body. And she's like, that's a million page essay. Yeah, you know, theology, too broad. Yeah, theology of the body, what? Yeah. Theology of the body, who? Theology of the body, when? And the more narrow you get, because even my title in my dissertation, which was on how smartphone use affects Gen Z's view of their bodies, there's still what seems like infinite amount of data you're trying to. And so part of it is you're trying to go, what is the 
the box that this dissertation is is uh, is addressing. And so I had a mentor um, who, back when I was at my previous church, who he just got a doctorate as well. And I remember him telling me that if all the knowledge of the world is like a beach and you start your doctorate dissertation and you're like, I don't want to add another beach. I don't want to add a whole bunch of sand. I want to just make one little sand castle mm. on my little corner of the beach and be content to have contributed to the knowledge of the human race. And he's like, but then as I got into it, I realized that that was way too high of an aspiration. <laughs> and I want to throw one grain of sand on that beach and then just get off the beach as fast <laughs> as possible. Yeah. And that's kind of what it feels like is you yeah. just get more and more narrow and more and more specific. And I don't think I did. If you ask my dissertation supervisors, I don't think I got narrow, quite narrow enough. Okay. It's still un, unusually broad for this type of dissertation. Uh, but that kind of process is painful. But the way the dissertation process works is you take... Yeah, there's these coursework you have to do. It's six classes. You read like 10 to 20 books, then you attend class for a week. And that's the same courses that any doctoral student at Covenant would take. Yeah. It's not like you took unique classes because of your topic or theme. No, and you, you're not even allowed to pick your theme until you're done with the coursework. Okay. So you take like a Christ and culture one. Okay. And you read a bunch of books on theology and culture and and so you take these six core courses and then you read about 3000 pages and then you attend and then you write about 20 or 30 pages and you do that six times. And once you're done with that, then you take the dissertation prep course. And in that course, you kind of learn how to, what is the dissertation? How do you write it? What's the research process? And then you begin to narrow down your topic. Yeah. And so um, just in a chronology here, so how long did it take you to do the coursework? The coursework took two years. And then how long did it take to write and the dissertation took a year. A year, okay, which is pretty fast. Yeah, they uh, this program was is designed for people who work mostly full time. Yeah, already, and so they say it takes minimum three, maximum eight. Yeah, years. but I remember a couple months ago you were going, uh, Luke. I don't think I'm going to get it done. In yeah, time. and about February, I was in a dark place related to this, <laughs> to this writing project, and I just had a mountain of footnotes without yeah. any clarity about how to organize them and put them together. Sure. And it's like you go to the coffee shop and you come back after six hours, and your wife goes, "How'd it go?" And you're like, "Terrible. I wrote <laughs> one paragraph, and not because I was checking Twitter, but because I couldn't sift through the stuff." And yeah, there's a lot. And so that that's kind of I I just underestimated how much pure administrative organization sure there is in research yeah there's a lot so much of what i've learned this process is that school and dissertations are not really a function of creativity or intelligence or curiosity they're basically a function of grit mm. can and, you get it done and yeah so it's funny you say that because even when i think about undergrad you know sometimes people will kind of go oh, i've got a few classes left but i don't know if i want to finish and and I kind of feel like, as like I'm, I'm rarely interested in what someone <laughs> studied in college, but it is it does tell you something. It doesn't tell you everything, but it does tell you something that someone had the grit to finish. Yeah. So at a minimum, now when I meet people, I mean, G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, "I got a doctorate so that I could have full license to not take people doctorate seriously." <laughs> And having gone through that process. That sounds like a quote that you probably like a little too much. I like it a lot too much. A lot too much. That's and, funny. But it does feel like it's not really a function of smartness, but more stubbornness. Yeah. There's kind of uh, like a, I'm not going to lose to this piece of paper. Yeah, it's interesting. Or this blinking cursor. Yeah. I'm going to win. And that was kind of like the psychological moral growth process mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. And I, and even talking about it like that feels too 
like lame, but it was, I, I had, a, I'm pretty good at school. Like school has not been hard for me. And this was kind of disorienting Yeah. in the difficulty. Well, there's a kind of ability to, to read deeply and to think deeply. I mean, there's a lot of like permission to play stuff that once, once you're at that level, well, now the grit really matter. Like someone a lot grittier than you might not be able to swim in these waters, you know? So uh, myself, I'm not grittier than you, but <laughs> were I to be grittier than you, I'm not sure I could have swam in these waters in the same way. Um, anyway, back to the, back to the, um, so out of the timeline. So you take, you take two years of coursework. What were some of the other things you thought about possibly doing a dissertation on? If part of it is it feels so long ago. Like even though it was <laughs> only a year ago, I had, I've kind of really only thought deeply about this for a long time. I thought about doing, something more explicitly related to sexuality with which this is really not explicitly related to sexuality. I thought about do, doing something related to epistemology, which is naturally interesting to me. Uh, we, our first handful of episodes were on that on Christ and culture. How do we know things? Yeah. What does it mean to know? What's the process of knowing and really kind of focusing in on like relational epistemology. How does who, you know, affect how you learn hmm. and affect the learning process, which would have been, Interesting. I think another thing I thought about was doing something more explicitly related to like spiritual formation and preaching. Yeah. Because there's preaching that entertains, there's preaching that retains, keeps people, and there's preaching that changes people. Mm. And how do you kind of discern yeah. which is which? Uh, like that one in particular, a thousand people have written that dissertation, just yeah. with a slightly different tweak. But then it was honestly at the start of the uh, pandemic, mm. and I started seeing all these people because I did my dissertation prep course in May. Okay. May, May of, of the May pandemic. May of 2020. of 2020. Yeah. So the pandemic had been kind of rolling. We were on our 30 more days to slow the spread. <laughs> right. Or whatever it was called. <laughs> the, the lockdown. Wait, the wait two weeks again. Yeah. The lockdown, or, not yeah. lockdown in Arizona. Right. And, and that thing was happening. And I saw all these people talking about going to church online. Mm. Uh, we were talking about, can you take communion right. online? I remember. We we're kind of wrestling through some of that stuff. There was, we st started buying nice video recording equipment. We had some stuff, but we started investing in infrastructure. Sure. And the whole time just kind of feeling icky about it. And especially seeing the youth in our church suffering the most mentally. Yeah. You know, and even like the parents who had the most angst were, <clears throat> uh, parents who had the most angst were mostly angsty on behalf of their kids whether it was masks or school or online. And sure. my wife is trying to do speech therapy with special needs kids online. And it's just a joke. And all, I'm like, this has got to have some long-term hmm. not just psychological effect on people, but theological effect on people. Yeah. Interesting. You know, okay. So when Jesus came, he came in the flesh, the way that the message translates it is he moved into the neighborhood and he took on flesh. He had a body. He put his body around other bodies. And then he was in his body around other people's bodies, having conversations. And his vocal cords directly affected the eardrums of other people. It was not mediated through the internet. It was just, you know, Jesus could have come as a ghost. He could have come as a hologram. That's part of what the heretics thought, the docetists, was that he just appeared to be in the flesh. Yeah. He couldn't do it. And so I started thinking theologically about this, recording things. And there's been a lot of threats to the church that people talk about, threats to the church. And I just kind of the whole time felt like this church online thing feels the opposite direction of the gospel, 
where mm. Jesus comes near yeah. and he gets close. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have done that. I do think that caution, the preliminary print, like the, pro, the, uh, not the preliminary principle, the, uh, precautionary principle when it comes to being pro-life is like, Hey, we're not sure how bad this thing is. Let's be careful at first. Sure. And then once we find out what the risks are and for who, then we can begin to become less cautious. And I think we did that. I think both of us in hindsight would have said we should have done that faster, but yeah, what are you going to do? So, so, so it's interesting to me that with that being a little bit of the genesis of your concerns and your sense of like, eh, what's this going to look like? You didn't go that direction, right? You didn't really go into like, what's the effect of online church, right? I imagine that would be a pretty unique contribution. You ended up kind of taking it in this Gen Z uh, smartphone direction. So why, how did that happen? So part of it was Josh Watt, who was our next gen pastor planted in North Phoenix. So he planted Redemption North Phoenix. And I, at that time, we had moved our kids, Pastor Arnold, to high school. Mm-hmm. So I was functioning as the kids pastor overseeing the kids team. Right. Yep. And I'd inherited overseeing the next gen team. And so I was kind of freshly anxious, appropriately, about we're reading books to cameras for kids and we're <laughs> doing online shows for students and thinking like all this stuff's better than nothing, but it's going to be helpful. So I was kind of thinking about in, in some of my new inherited responsibility, how do I consider some of these things? And then honestly, online church is too broad. Sure. So going, how does like online quote community unquote affect students in particular adolescents? Yeah. Uh, and kids who are 18 was too broad. So narrowing it down to adolescents in particular, which a lot of the research focuses on adolescents because those are the people who are developing their self-concept. Okay. Uh, a lot of kids are developing a lot of ways, but it's when you're an adolescent that you're individuating, you're kind of going, I'm not my parents and how do I, and you kind of go to your peers yeah, more so than your parents for some of your source of identity. And that's just part of the normal developmental process. And what happens when that process is not at recess or in the classroom or in that process is becoming increasingly digitized digitized (laughs) and and that how does that affect students next gen and those types of things so i kind of did ask the question how's online church going to affect these people sure but if you switch church for community which we really want to be a community not just the dispensers of religious goods and services if we're trying to be a community and if adolescents are increasingly experiencing community in a digital form how's that affecting their development yeah especially as it relates to their body yeah so one more question kind of on the backstory of, of this, and then I want to move into kind of the beginnings of theology of the body. So when you do a project like this, I mean, you're just reading gobs of everything, <laughs> I imagine. So tell us a little bit, not to, you know, I'm asking the question, you're not, you know, trying to be impressive, but like what, what kinds of stuff did you read? How much did you read? How broadly did you read? What does that process look like? So the way the project is designed and the way you do a dissertation like the one that I did is there's a process called the literature review. So chapter one is like your research proposal. You're going, here's why this stuff matters. Here's why these questions matter. And you submit your chapter one to the supervisors. And when they approve it, then they assign you to a, uh, a the German word is Dr. Vater, which means... <laughs> That's uh, a fun word to say. Yeah, it's a person who oversees your dissertation. Like okay. The father of your dissertation. Yeah. You know, and so I got assigned to a guy named Dan Doriani, Dr. Doriani, who is the vice president of academics at Covenant. Real sharp guy. Yep. 
really great guy. I've got to know him the last three years. It's and funny. I think I've told you this, but when I was in college, I went to a Camps Crusade Christmas conference every year, like over Christmas break. And I think a couple of those years, Doriani was the kind of every morning, it was like a five-day conference, and every morning there was like a Bible teaching in the morning. And it was just him doing kind of simple exposition of the Gospels. And, you know, it was, I don't know, 20 years ago or whatever it was, more than that now. But, yeah, he was, he's a great Bible teacher and always just struck me as a really sharp guy. And so it's funny that, I mean, he's not a well-known guy in the Christian I mean, in certain parts of maybe the PCA or something he would be, but it's pretty cool that, at least for me, kind of this affection I have for him there, kind of sort of knowing him through that, and then kind of sort of knowing him through you, it's pretty cool. Part of the reason I like him is he's a really good theologian, and he's just slick in a way that's funny. He's (laughs) just an interesting person. A lot of theologians become non-interesting really fast, Yeah, and that's one of my biggest fears about my just personality in general is uh-huh. become non-fun and just become nerdy. Yeah. But he's, he's, he's a fun guy. He wrote a book on work, which is really good. Mm. It's probably my number one book. I recommend to people who are wanting What does the Bible say about work? I recommend his book. Huh. He wrote a book called the, uh, the new man theology of manhood. And he, so those are more popular level books. And then he also just finished a 10 year commentary in the book of Romans. Wow. So it does talk about a long project. When I, when I was feeling sorry for myself about this <laughs> one-year project, I was like, okay, people do 10-year writing projects. In, that's incredible. And the deliberate slow grind of that. Wow. Silly. So that's a – he's a great guy. He's yeah. also a fellow Jewish person. So – Oh, wow. I didn't know that. We can connect on that level. Okay. Which is not that much, but – Yeah. So he gets so he gets assigned to be your your uh, Dr. Vater. <laughs> Did I say that right? I don't know if I say it right. Yeah. <laughs> so he gets assigned to that. And then does he tell you what to read or you kind of go, here's what I'm going to read or. Yeah. So I, I submit to him a preliminary bibliography and then he adds things to that list. Okay. And so I read, so like the first person I quote in my dissertation is Lady Gaga. Okay. <laughs> which is not that difficult, but I want, I want to read the quote. Okay. And it, Cause I, Part of it is she does represent the way that most people think. Okay, well, let's come back to that, I think. Okay. I don't know. Because I want to hear that, but I, I give us the scope, and then I want to dive into the thing. Well, I'm giving, so part of, I'm going, part of it was reading pop culture. Okay. So, like, That's pink, interesting. pink news, the LGBTQ newspaper. Okay. Uh, what are, like, the, the themes in pop music, like, kind of trying to, so there's pulse on current culture. Okay. What are people saying, doing? And so like this, this Lady Gaga quote from her 2013 album says, you can't have my heart, you won't use my mind, but do what you want with my body. Huh. So that really captures the dualistic. Sure. What, there's something precious about my heart, there's something precious about my mind, but yeah. my body is just nothing. Mm. That I think Christians buy into, even if they don't buy into it, regarding sexuality, they do buy into it, maybe in terms of yeah. other health, fitness, exercise, those types of things. So so on the far end of the spectrum, there's Lady Gaga pop culture stuff. <laughs> on the end of the spectrum, I reviewed a lot of Plato and Descartes stuff from my philosophy undergrad okay. that I kind of had in the library in there somewhere <laughs> in my back of my mind, but okay. I went back and reviewed it. Um, and especially some like history of Western culture people, uh, that we're kind of talking about the tracing of what it means to be a human. Um, there's a book by Tom Holland named Dominion, a book by 
um, Richard Tarnas called The Passion of Western Mind, a book by John Frame called History of Western Philosophy and Theology. So some of the kind of those tracing of history books, which are not primary sources, but they're still interesting takes. And for the purpose of my dissertation, I didn't have to read primary historical sources. I was trying to read people. Another really helpful history book that I read was Carl Truman's book, Making of the Modern Self, just mm-hmm. came out pretty recently. So those are kind of some telling the story of the way that people viewed their bodies over time. Then some of the primary sources I read, and this is stuff, some of the stuff that Doriani made me read. Uh, there's uh, Judith the Butler is the professor of gender studies and feminism at uh, Berkeley in California. Ooh. And she slash they has been there since the 80s and okay. uh, wrote a book in 1990 called Gender Trouble. Okay. And then in 1993, wrote a book called Bodies That Matter. So that's and like the epicenter of the of the revolution on an on an academic yeah. side. Yeah, when you talk when people talk about queer theory, that kind of problematizing heteronormative views of reality, uh, Judith Butler was a big voice in that. Okay, another person named J. Jack Hobertson, again, kind of a she they type person, good good thoughtful scholar, kind of had that same elitist super leftist prose. So trying to read the people who are saying the things at a more, in a more sophisticated level that probably in, so obviously Judith Butler's writings in the early nineties mm-hmm. basically is now what's normative. Yeah. Commonplace. Sure. So 30 years out. So trying to read some of that stuff. Wow. So she, Judith Butler writes about how biological binaries are constructs of white heteronormativity and tells that story. I read some Michel Foucault, History of Sexuality, who is the 1960s French philosopher who's kind of the one of the big voices in the founding of postmodernism. Okay. And a lot of it was he was trying to um, undo the effects of Christianity on the West's view of sexuality. And so it's interesting because before Christianity was normative, you know, even things like ejaculation was viewed as like a urinated, urination. Yeah, we had we talked about that a few episodes back, I think. Yeah, and the kind of the like utilitarianism of it. All. Yeah, it's just a bodily need, and you got to do it sometimes. And whether you pee on this tree or pee in the toilet, who cares? And that was kind of the same view of yeah. even orgasm. It was nothing. It's just a. But this idea that uh, sexual connection and sexual expression matters was given to us by Christianity, and a lot of what Michel Foucault is saying, like we got to undo that. Okay. You know, back in the day you could just relieve yourself into people and it was fine. And we've, we've given way too much hype to this thing. And anyway, he, so yeah, so you're just reading, I mean, you're reading all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I'm reading all over the spectrum, trying to just get a feel for what people are saying and how they're saying it. And so that's, that's on more like the, the, uh, the secular non-Christian side. Yeah, even, even that to me just is, is fairly impressive because I think a lot of us would have a hard time reading a bunch of that stuff. Cause a lot of times we, uh, most people, just read things either that they already agree with or that they know they want to learn from like in a, I want this to shape me positively. And so to kind of intentionally wade into the waters of some of that stuff that like, you kind of know, like I don't really want this to shape me, but I have to know what they're saying. Um, that takes a, a kind of courage and a kind of grit and a kind of discernment. And even I would think some spiritual, spiritual strength to kind of endure that. And so I'm, I'm thankful that well, part, yeah, you were willing it, to do that. Yeah. Part of it from a spiritual perspective is these people are not idiots. They're right. They're sin. They're sinners. Sure. 
And I think if we just dismiss them as idiots, it's it's not really helpful. I mean, there is a sense in which we're all fools, biblically speaking. <laughs> sure. And but uh, so the Reformed tradition talks about the noetic effects of sin, which is you know there's obviously the moral dimension of sin, which is um, our inclination to want the wrong things and to do the wrong things, and it's so it's immorality. But the noetic effects of sin are more describing the the effect of sin on decision-making and thought process. Okay. So the fact that we're sinners makes us foolish, not just sinful. Huh. So it's not we're just immoral, but we're actually stupider. <laughs> and okay. and so you kind of see this is why people can be taken captive by empty and vain philosophies and why uh, people tend to rationalize their desires. And so it's kind of like, think about Freud. Freud talked about the Oedipus complex. You ever heard of this? I've heard of that. I'm trying to remember what it is. So it's this idea this idea that Freud believed that all men kind of have this um, desire to sexually conquer their mothers. Yes, that's right. And that tells you more about Freud than it does about <laughs> anybody else. <laughs> right. All you know, when, when any guy says, well, all men blank, all they're doing is saying me and I don't want to feel bad about it. Yeah, sure. All men, you know what all men are like. And it's, especially if it's coming from a man, all I hear that is a closet confession of going, let me tell you about what I'm like that I really hope all men are like so I can feel less icky. Sure. And so we tend to rationalize our own unhealthy desires. We don't even know we're doing it all the time. And yeah. that's called the noetic of exorcism. So reading these folks, um, from a Christian perspective, there's a, a handful of old philosophers. By old, I mean uh, not like, so Marshall McLuhan was right in the 70s, Jacques Ellul, French Calvinist. Marshall McLuhan was a Roman Catholic in the 70s. Um, Jacques Ellul was writing in the in the '60s, and Neil Postman, a Jewish philosopher, was writing in the '80s, mm-hmm. and they wrote a ton about technology, society, its effect on people's ability to think and feel, and and process information. And so, like Marshall McLuhan wrote this book called *The Medium and the Light*, which is all about electronic technology and the effect it's going to have on people's ability to know God. And he wrote this like 50 years ago, 1977. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So he has this quote. So he's talking about the radio and how um, the person on the radio is electrified, just like you and I right now would be electrified. Sure. And he says, electric man has no bodily being. He is literally discarnate. But in a discarnate world, like the one we now live in, this is a tremendous to the incarnate church. And its theologians haven't even deemed it worthwhile to examine that fact. So he's the second person I quote. I quote Lady Gaga, then I quote Marshall McLuhan. And he's 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago, saying this discarnate church thing is incongruent with the story of Jesus. And theologians are too quick to just adopt yeah. the technology rather than resist it. So I read some old French, American, Jewish, um, Roman Catholic, Calvinist, Jewish <laughs> um, thinkers. And... That was really insightful, partly because you're reading this and it's like, this is one gigantic I told you so. Huh. I read some stuff by an ethicist from Ireland called Oliver O'Donovan, who wrote a book called Begotten or Made, which is all about uh, artificial insemination and how it affects people's view of bodies and, and procreation in that process. Wow. So you're just reading all over the place. That, that's, why, that's why I asked, is I feel like, um, I think, I just think as people listen, it's interesting to know like, oh, wow, this is like, you had to read a lot of stuff and you probably read a ton that never makes it into your paper, never makes it into your stuff. Yeah, one of the most annoying parts in this process was I wrote like seven pages on Judith Butler. That was really good. I thought, <laughs> and Dr. Doriani was like, this is too much. So yeah. I had to delete like three pages of it. Okay. Cause it's, 
Like, this is not a Judith Butler thing. Sure. But I read all of her stuff, and it was yeah, so kind of like, I was thinking, this is kind of crazy. And so, like, so even uh, Michel Foucault, like, I, he wrote some stuff that I found personally insightful that didn't make it in. Like, he talked about when we went from sodomy to homosexuality, that historical process. In terms of what people called it? Yeah, it used to be, oh, you are a sodomite, which put the emphasis on the act yeah. And sodomy was um, this the infosivable act. But then because of like the scientific revolution, you started talking about homosexuality like as a condition. Huh. And he called it the speciesization huh. of a different type of human. Interesting. And how we separated homosexuals and heterosexuals. And, and he talked about this as like he's writing about this is creating this there are people who are born X and people who are born Z, and they're totally different. And you see that. So he writing in the 1960s about the speciesization of the homosexual. And he's arguing for we should get rid of that and just let people be sodomites and get over it. That's his, his view. Right. But from a Christian perspective, you go this whole like born this way, people identifying as their sexuality, it's, it's speciesization. And it's, Interesting. it's detrimental to the image of God. Like there is not species of people. Yeah. There is one human race in Adam, and we all have these disordered sexual desires, period. Yep. And categorizing and classifying and labeling people in accordance with the ways that they are tempted to act out sexually is foolish. And so that's a great insight Michel Foucault came up with, who is totally pagan and yeah. lost and, to the best of my knowledge, died in his sin, hating God. But there is insight. And so non-Christians can't have insight into creation. And sure. th- and that's called the doctrine of common grace. You don't have to have the spirit of God yeah. to see creation clearly in part. Yep. And so some of that stuff was just interesting to me. On more like the theologian side, I read a lot of Herman Bovink. Um, I read a lot of Eugene Peterson, a lot of John Frame, and a lot of commentaries on various Bible texts. There's a couple um, people, like Nancy Piercy wrote a book, Love Thy Body, which is actually a great example to me of how I think we should not be talking about bodies. Hmm. It's an excellent book about sexuality. Okay. It's not about bodies. Okay. Interesting. And I think part of it is one of the things Christians tend to be frustrated right now is that we are annoyed that sexuality is hyper-emphasized and like people's whole identity is placed in sexuality. But when we talk about bodies, only in the context of sexuality, we're actually buying into that narrative. Huh, we're, we're over-sexualizing the body. That's the body does tons of things. Yeah. It thinks, it feels, it sings, it hears, right. it hugs, it holds, it stands, it kneels, it sits, it works, it creates, hmm. and it has sex. Yeah. But the book Love Thy Body was not about health, fitness, exercise, work, yeah. emotions. It was about... It's funny because I feel like a few years ago you told me like, oh man, this book by Nancy Piercy, Love Thy Body, is so good. It's a phenomenal book, and I think everyone should read it. It's just phenomenal, but about one aspect of the. She should have titled the book "Love Thy Gender." Okay, <laughs> that's what it should have been. Yeah, and yeah. and part of the reason she's doing that, I understand that, and this is kind of, um, and I don't, I'm not saying she should title it something different. I mean, I just said that, but I'm not yeah. really saying that because she's trying to write make one point. She's like this whole. Uh, my identity is in my gender and my body doesn't tell me my gender. My psychology tells me my gender is, is silly. Yeah. And that's the point of her book. That's silly. Yeah. No, your body so, tells you who you are. So let's, let's dig into this body stuff a bit. I've been kind of restraining you from going there, but let's, let's go. So, um, which statement is, is more true? 
I have a body or I am my body. So I think that we talk about how we are embodied. That's a couple of books that just come out. Preston Sprinkle one embodied another theologian. Um, I think is Greg Allison wrote a book called embodied that just came out. A lot of people writing these books on embodied. Sure. And I would actually prefer the language of insold like that. You're, hmm. Okay. So God creates all the animals and the animals all have bodies. Then he creates Adam out of the dust and he breathes into him and he becomes a nefesh, which is the Hebrew word for person or soul. And so um, this idea that our body and soul, it's kind of like talking about looking at the same thing through two different lenses. Okay. So it's, it's in one sense accurate to say I have a body. It's another sense accurate to say I have a soul. And it's also accurate to say I have a body. I am a body. I am my body. And it's probably also accurate to say I am my soul. But the body and the soul are basically inseparable and they go together. I think it'd be probably most accurate to say I am my body. And very often in scripture and even in function, we see that the body stands for the whole person. Romans 12, worship with your body, offer your body's living sacrifice. Romans, Paul's talking about your whole self, your whole person. Yeah. In Genesis 1, God creates a person and that person is a body. Just like right now I'm sitting across from you. If I said, where is Luke? I'd point at your body. <laughs> right. Right. Um, the, the, even the process of thinking about what the image of God is. An image is a physical representative of something that's unseen or somewhere else. And the, the tasks, I'm going to make them in my image. So it's inherently physical, visible. Uh, he does not make them souls. He makes them bodies. And he gives them an eternal dimension, which we call the soul. Yeah, this would even be different than like in LDS theology, where you basically had pre-kind of eternally existent souls who come to earth and get bodies. Yeah. And then, you know discard them and go up to the third heaven and that sort of thing. That's not a Christian view of things. No. You know, it's not that we've always existed as a disembodied thing. We're, we're made by God when a sperm and an egg come together and begin forming cells. And it's like, we're, we're embodied from the very point of fertilization. Yeah. From the time that a new life begins at conception, it's, it's a body. Huh. Yeah. And, and that concrete reality. So even Carl Barth, Carl Barth, one of the most famous theologians in the last handful of years, talked about humanity being a besold body. A besold body. A besold body. or an insold, a given a soul. Yeah. That there's an eternal dimension given to the human body that's not given to other animal bodies. Okay. Right. So we are bodies and we receive souls. The theologian Herman Bovink talks about how. The soul always peers through the eyes, thinks through the brain, grasps with the hands, and walks with the feet. That trying to talk about a person apart from their body is impossible, period. Hmm. You can't do it. John Frame talks about how um, when you die, and it talks about to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, uh, he argues that that's actually a condition caused by sin. Huh, okay. That the separation that occurs... In the fall, in Genesis 3, uh, that separation has lots of layers. You separate from yourself, you lose self-awareness, you separate from God. That's 
eternal damnation. You separate from others. That's relational hostility. But then also there's a sense in which uh, even our soul's ability to process our emotions yeah. is, is inhibited. And what we look forward to and we hope to is not a disembodied, sold existence. Like we don't uh, bury people in hope of uh, our being an ang- angelic, disembodied nothing. Yeah. We bury people in future hope of future resurrection, in certain future hope of resurrection. That's Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think what you're tapping into there is kind of an instinct that I've had over the years having been part of so many funerals. And I... um you know, I, I don't generally try to police this or correct it in people because they're grieving and they're processing. And But there is a kind of um, Christianity on the street that says once you die, if you're a believer, then you go home. Then you go, you know, then you've, you know, you, you, the, the end of the story, you're, you're in perfection and you're in, and I think what people are trying to say is like, hey, you're in the presence of the Lord. Jesus called it to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me in paradise. But I always want to go, that's not, that's not the end of the story. That's not the hope. That's the waiting room until, until the resurrection. That really is the hope is that we would be re-embodied. If you would say that. Yeah. The, the, the continuity between our resurrection bodies is it is going to be this body resurrected. Yeah. And when we see Jesus resurrected, there's kind of a little bit, they don't recognize him, but then they kind of do. Sure. So there's continuity and there's discontinuity between our resurrection bodies and our current bodies, but they are our bodies. Yep. Jesus isn't resurrected in some other body. It wasn't like start from scratch body. Sure. It was this body that. Yeah. Re- and he didn't just go, well, I'll just be in heaven and you guys can all just come to and your souls can just join me in heaven. That, that wasn't the hope. The hope was the physical resurrection. Yeah, and and this whole idea of even just the way our bodies were designed, a lot of times there's a lot of questions created. Um, Kuiper has this uh, quote that Abraham Kuiper, who's a Dutch theologian, he says this, and I think it's pretty helpful. He says, remember the undeniable truth that our physical life does not maintain itself spontaneously, but lasts only by continually taking in nourishment. Our body continually digests, and that loss must be compensated for by the steady intake of new nourishment. This is not only true now as a result of the fall or sin, but it's also true in paradise. God created them to surely eat of the tree of the garden. Therefore, we are mistaken to imagine that even in paradise, the maintenance of the body won't exist. Hmm. And so this idea that God creates Adam and Eve to eat and process nourishment, that Jesus even tells the disciples, I'll not partake of this again until the the new creation, until I come again. And so a lot of like the functions of our body... Like, we don't eat because of sin. We eat because of creation. Yeah, sure. And so when Jesus comes back and makes all things new and wipes away the effects of sin, we're still going to eat good food. Yeah. And so we're still going to have bodies that do things Yeah. in in the new creation. And so looking forward to a a, a, a body made new is, yeah. is key in this. And so, and yet the, the idea has emerged that I am distinct from my body, that there's a, there's my body and then there's kind of the true me or the inner me, or the real me, or the authentic me. Um, and it seems like, I mean, it, my sense is, having talked to you a little bit about this, you're going to argue that the, the smartphone and the digitization and that sort of stuff accelerates that way of thinking, but it didn't create it. So so where does this kind of come from, this idea that you're not your body, but you're actually kind of this distinct thing from it? 
You know, first I'd say I have a lot of empathy for Christians who buy into it. There is some language in the New Testament that's would be confusing this direction. Like Paul talks all the time about the flesh being evil and the flesh being terrible and the flesh is bad, the flesh is bad, the flesh is bad. Uh, but the NIV actually doesn't really translate that, but kind of interpret translates that. Uh-huh. Yeah, they say the sinful nature. The sinful flesh, right? or the sinful nature. Uh, but this idea of uh, Jesus being uh, for the body but against the flesh huh. is helpful. Interesting. Um, Romans 8 and 6, like setting the mind on the flesh is death. Uh, it's not the body that's death. And so there is like this deliverance from the sinful body that's talking about the suffering we experience in the body. Um, but it's really deliverance from the flesh. And so Abraham Kuyper, again, in um, one of his books called On the Church, writes that Paul declares strongly that setting one's mind on the body, not setting one's mind on the body, but setting one's mind on the flesh is death. Therefore, with the instrument of our body, we must crucify the flesh to combat its temptation. With the body against the flesh is God's holy ordinance. And this is talking about um, elsewhere in Romans where it talks about the body as an instrument of righteousness. It's a tool. It's a weapon. Yeah that God can use our bodies even in their sinful fallen condition as instruments and tools and weapons of righteousness. So the flesh is not talking about your literal body as much as it's this way that Paul is describing your sinful tendencies, your sinful flinches, your sinful orientation. Yeah, there's a theologian named Al Walters in his book, Creation Regained, who talks about these two categories, structure and direction. And one of the things he argues, which I really buy into, is this idea that after the fall— things remain structurally good, but directionally broken or disordered. And so the body remains structurally good, meaning uh, the creational purpose for it to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue, to have dominion, instruments of righteousness. Our bodies are fundamentally good, um, but there's two things that happen to them. They're directionally disordered, one, in a way that Abraham Kuyper describes as a creational apostasy, Meaning like even creation itself, the fabric of creation is rebelling against God's good design. That's mm-hmm. why our bodies decay. That's why we get cancer. That's why we experience sleeplessness. That's why we form addictions is that like biology itself is in rebellion to God. Mm. So creational apostasy. That's one of the things I always, I mean, this could be a whole different conversation, but when people talk about we got to do what's natural, I was like, you mean what's rebelling against God yeah. <laughs> because of sin? Well, there's or, whole, there's whole Instagram accounts called like nature is metal and it's just, yeah. Animals doing these vicious things to each other. Right. Like, yeah, let's do it's natural. That sounds right. like a good idea. Yeah. You know, let's all, what's that spider that eats its husband? <laughs> the black widow. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's natural to eat your husband. So, right. Well, that's the way people think. You know, it's like, well, dolphins, you know, uh, dolphins have gay sex. That's, therefore, it's natural. <laughs> it's like, well, dolphins also eat their own poop. You don't do that. You know, so, <laughs> so just arguing that some animal does it is not. <laughs> Arguing that some animal does it does not equal that sure. it's naturally good. So, yeah. so, so some good, of the so, con, so some of the confusion in this comes from maybe misunderstandings of the Bible and yes, the New Testament. So direction has both to do with like the ontology or the structure of things or the substance of things themselves, creational apostasy. Okay, but also has to do with the moral direction, meaning you can use your bodies to uh, do evil things, okay. uh, and you can take advantage of people. You can. Uh, physically harm people, you can deceive people, you can create things with your bodies that serve to harm human flourishing rather than do those things. And so that's what the idea of structure and direction. And it's actually a helpful framework of thinking about basically anything, you know, yeah. uh, whether it's food to our bodies, to churches, to music, structurally good, often directionally, always directionally disordered. And so 
part of what we're doing in following Jesus is not trying to change the structure of things that God has made, but trying to repent for the direction that they've gone. Hmm. So, so this whole idea of that your body is, is not your true you, and it might even be bad. I mean, that, that's not a new idea. That's, that's Gnosticism. I mean, that's early. A lot of Eastern religions kind of have that. So is, is what we're experiencing today not anything really new? It's just kind of the, like, repaganization of what was previously a Christian, Christian-ish, Christianized, Christendom culture? Yeah, there's this reality that the book of Ecclesiastes talks about, how there's nothing new under the sun. It just kind of read. It takes different shapes, and it plays out in different ways. But from Plato, talked about the forms, the real thing is the non-embodied, the non-corporeal thing, and that the, the form kind of manifests in different broken ways. And so there's this really famous painting that I appreciate. Um, it's called by Raphael, called The School of Athens, and Plato and Aristotle are walking, and Plato's pointing up to the sky, right, meaning yeah. like the real stuff is up there, and Aristotle's pointing to the ground, Another the real thing's right here. And Aristotle is not a biblical worldview guy, but he's probably closer to a biblical view of humanity that's like, no, this kind of idea of the forms being somewhere else. So Platonism was huge, and that's one of the reasons why the heresy in the first century was so big is that Plato and the Platonists were hugely influential, and a lot of Christians were trying to take Plato seriously and take God seriously. But if Plato was right, and a lot of the way the Greeks thought about the body, the body is bad— it was need to be abolished. Um, even kind of similar to modern Buddhists who talk about the extinguishing of desire right. and the disassociating from bodily function is the path to liberty. Plato had a similar worldview in that regard. And so Christians were going, how could Jesus take on flesh if if the bodies are terrible? Yeah, bodies are bad. Clearly he wouldn't do that. Therefore, he must have only appeared yeah, so to be a body, therefore docetism. Nowadays, people think it's nuts that some people think Jesus was God. In the first century, people thought it was nuts that people thought Jesus was human. Huh, interesting. It's because way, of the body part. Yeah, it's generally more common for the heretics to deny in various ways the, humani- the, the, uh, the humanity of Jesus. Well, that's interesting even there because what that reveals is that to be human is to be embodied <laughs> it's to yes. have a body yeah. like you there is they didn't go well you could be truly human and just not have a body yeah they didn't think that well it's like the book of hebrews talks about how he had to be made like us in every respect and so a ton of first second third century theologians talk about quote in every respect that means all the ways yeah he had to be made like us in all the ways um, so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to god and so the fact that he's the best high priest we've ever had is because he took on a body and he knows what it's like. He knows how to process through that. So when it comes to the theology of the body, what are maybe a few more things that you go like, Hey, this is stuff we got to understand. This has got stuff we got to think about. Yeah. So there's Platonism. Then like the second big movement that I talk about in dissertation is what we called Cartesianism, which comes from Rene Descartes. A lot of people probably heard this phrase, this idea of the cogito quote unquote cogito ergo sum. I think therefore I am. He talks about, so basically um, he's doing this thought experiment thing and he's sitting around going, how do I know that I exist? Which is if any of you have been a philosophy major, those people are everywhere. How <laughs> like, do I know that I exist? Let me punch you in the face and see if you know that you still exist. <laughs> Turns out you exist. Cause I, yeah. And, and so he's trying to do this like thought experiment and he's like, well, there has to be a me or an I that is doomed to thinking. I think therefore I am, but he basically reduces the essence or the substance 
or kind of the the basic component of the human as its thoughts. Okay. I think, therefore I am. Not I have a body, therefore I am. Not I feel, therefore I am. Not I do, therefore I am, but I think, therefore I am. So the basis of it was its thoughts. And so the most basic component of what it meant to be a person was to be a thinking thing. And a lot of what we see in this digitization stuff and the way that it's going on is if you even see there's a handful of people who wrote books about people being online. Well, churches should be online because people are online. And I want to go, hold on, hold on. People are not online. People are in spaces and in places and they are projecting themselves and their thoughts online. Hmm. Yeah. Like you are not your Or they're person. using the internet. Yeah, or they're using the internet or they're communicating through the internet or they're they're constructing a digitized self online that's meant to represent them. Yeah. But they they are in the room on their bed with a glowing rectangle in their face. Yeah. That's what they are. That's where they are. Sure. But the idea that if you can reduce the person to their thoughts, reduce the person to their psychology, reduce the person to their cognition, then they can, quote, be online. Huh. Interesting. You know, even if you go into Facebook, it's like, who is online? And you could read that and it's going like, well, they're... Project- who's, who's using this right Who's now? using this? Yeah. But in terms of this idea of presence and space and where you are and where you are not, part of what the digital stuff does is it kind of raises questions of what does it mean to be somewhere or not be somewhere? Sure. And a lot of what we're seeing is with the digital process happening is it's actually creating the possibility of actualizing this Cartesian dualism that the person can actually become their thoughts. Hmm. And so people weren't able to actually act on, I think therefore I am from like a functional identity standpoint until now there is a thing you can upload yourself to and you quote can be there unquote. Yeah. And that leads into what, um, so we talk about the idea of transhumanism. A lot of people hear about transgender, this idea that um, my sense of gender can be incongruent with my, my bodily sex or my, quote, sex assigned at birth. But transhumanism is different. It's not really talking about gender. It's talking about this idea of uploadable persons. Okay. So the transhumanists kind of view uh, the... the this, he- is, this is growing in some pockets of... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty possible. Philosophy and technology and... And so Jack Halbertson, in the book Gaga Feminism, um, talks about why has the LGBTQ stuff been changing so fast? Obviously, it's been there. Like, the Equality Act is coming out. Th- things like this have been around since 1970s, but it might pass this time. Why is it maybe going to pass this time? And what that person says is advances in computer technology, new medical research, increased mobility, planes, trains, and automobiles, new forms of social contact and social networking, new modes of media, including Twitter feeds, new levels of media. These are leading us to a reconsideration of terms, names, and categories in the ways in which we used to understand our bodies. So she makes a connection that technology plus kind of leftist gender norms are creating this um, technologized sense of self, this technologized person, that who I am is my projected constructed self. And the way that transhumanists view a lot of this stuff, because basically everybody knows lots of screen time for adolescents equals higher suicidality. They just had this massive study come out like two, three months ago, kind of a a cross-time look at screen use. And basically the conclusion is, yeah, it's terrible for you. Your mental health suffers. But what the transhumanists say is, this is just an iteration in evolutionary development. Hmm. 
just like it probably was uncomfortable when the giraffe was growing its long neck, it's <laughs> uncomfortable for the humans to process into becoming these digitized persons. Mm. And so what they would argue is that we've basically had a Darwinistic survival of the fittest thing for the last X numbers of billions of years. And we are now for the first time about to experience a real form of intelligent design. Okay. And the intelligent designers are the humans. Mm. And it's kind of like you think about Star Wars, uh, you know, they have the electronic hand, but there's a bunch of shows now on Netflix. Like one of them is called Upload. Okay. And the idea is based on your wealth and access to assets and capital, you can buy an uploadable conscience. You hook your brain up to a computer and your conscience is uploaded to a computer and you can go to heaven hmm. and continue to communicate. So you in the upload can communicate by means of digital technology, you basically kind of become a Sims character for eternity, and that's heaven. Hmm. And so it's a kind of way of creating eternal life through an online presence. Yeah, that's the whole idea. Um, some of like Elon Musk's stuff on Neuralink is currently focused on making medical devices, but this is the way a lot of these things begin, as it begins by improving the sinful condition of humans, but then it attempts to go beyond the creational bodily design of humans and trying, so this idea of transhumanists. Okay. Like you're going from being a homo sapien to something else. Hmm. And this digital technology is going to take us there. So if you, on Amazon Prime, there's a word show upload. You can check it out. But it's very interesting. But um, a guy named Yuval Harari wrote a book called Homo Deus, A History of Tomorrow. It came out in 2017. Uh, what a title. Homo Deus means man is God. Yeah. And he's basically arguing that, hey, this all we should understand this. Here's a quote from him. this current process should be understood from a cosmic perspective of billions of years rather than from human perspective of millennia. His whole deal is like, well, if this is just one notch in the billions and trillions of years divide, we shouldn't look back at the 1950s and be like, man, that was better. But we should look back and say like, well, in a billion years <laughs> when we're all uploaded into chips and we're all scattered all over the universe. Um, and even this idea of escaping earth that now, uploading our consciences, shipping them to somewhere else and creating these kind of, uh, you know, digital reality experiences for our chip, which becomes ourself wow. is the future. And so it's interesting that even going back to kind of like a dispensational view that the goal is to escape earth. Yeah. The transhumanists share that goal. The goal is to escape earth and to, interesting. to take the, uh, the mind somewhere else. And so these, these folks, they tend to view the body as a shackle, as something that's holding us back in the same way that Plato did. Uh, yeah, and right. so, so this, this dualist, I'm not my body, I'm my cognition, uh, has been, it's the future, it's the past, it's everywhere. And I just think a lot of Christians fall into this view that, and we say this to teens trying to be encouraging who are feeling insecure about their changing bodies. Like, hey, you're not your body. Huh. Don't put your identity in your body. Yeah, And it's like, well don't put your identity in some hyper-sexualized image-based view of your body. But right. a, a lot of the way we even think about bodies now has changed because of there's cameras everywhere. Sure. You're always posting pictures of yourself somewhere. Um, even this, this idea of like doing it for the gram, people <laughs> don't even know what they like. Yeah. They just know what gets likes. Yeah. And so they do that. Yeah. Uh, and I was talking to my professor about this and we think is in his late sixties. And his mind was blown. He's like, I was at the beach the other week. <laughs> and this group of girls came down to the beach, took pictures, and then left. 
And I thought, they did the worst part. <laughs> right, of the beach. <laughs> That's the worst part of the beach. <laughs> You're like, oh, I can't wait to see what I look like in this swimsuit. Right. But that's all they do. They do the worst part. They yeah. don't enjoy it. They're not present in it. They're not mm. feeling the sand in their toes. They're not feeling the wind on their face. They're not. Right. They just do the worst part. And that's part of what this digitized image-based identity thing is. Yeah. So I think when even talking to our adolescents, I'm saying we don't want to find our identity in how people sexualize our bodies. Right. And the quote, and even there's, like I see some Christians talk about, you know, your beauty is not in your appearance, it's in your character. And it's like, no, beauty is beauty and character is character. Like we, like, yeah, sort of, like yeah, we're sure. trying to change beauty from being, I mean, Proverbs 31 talks about how beauty is fleeting. So yeah, it comes and goes and quick. It doesn't matter that much, but like hmm. beauty is beauty, character is character. Yeah. But even in our attempt to tell people, hey, your beauty is not how you look. Your beauty is your character. We are saying your real you is not your body. Man, that's so interesting just how subtle that is. Because, yeah, I mean, I just I just feel like it's easy to fall into those traps where a, um, yeah, a, a Gnostic or a Docetistic kind of view just is everywhere. And you don't even know that you're kind of buying into it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so so I think part of it is trying to recognize that, no, God made our bodies partly for the purpose of um, marriage and reproduction, and that's normative for humanity in Genesis 1. It's normal yeah. that men and women should be attracted to each other and get married, have sex, enjoy it, and, some, and when it happens, reproduce children. That's normal. And that beauty is part of that process. Sure. And saying beauty is not part of that process. It's, it's, you know, I think we're trying to, we're crazy making people. Yeah. It's like, cause it's obviously part of that process. Right. Uh, and so trying to let, yeah, but beauty is fleeting. So yeah. it matters less, but right. it, it's real. Yeah. Um, but even like this transhumanist stuff and then we could probably, we've basically talked about all the bad stuff that we can talk about <laughs> the biblical view. But, um, so this idea, so this is interesting from a Christian perspective that this idea of union, unity, what if we could all be one? We want to be united. We know we're divided. We want to be united. One of the big goals is this idea of the global brain, that when you have all these Neuralink implants into people's minds so that they can upload themselves to be eternal, they want to network our brains together okay? so we can share memories and share insight and create the superhuman thing. Um, and the internet, the way the internet kind of creates this instantaneous inter-computer collaboration, um, we can... They, a lot of transhumanists think we can do it with our brains, wow. that we can instantaneously collaborate, solve problems faster, think deeper. Well, based on how it's going with the internet, I imagine that'll go great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Because yeah. the internet, I mean, all that, all the internet does really is bring people together and yeah. a lot of kumbaya moments. Yeah, so <laughs> Har- Harari says it like this. He says, the attempt to devise a direct two-way brain-computer interface will allow computers to read the electrical signals of the human brain, simultaneously transmitting signals to the brain that can read in turn. So basically, you could have the whole internet in your mind instantly. Oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah, wait till North Korea hacks that. Right. And it'll be a problem. But one of the craziest things is uh, a theologian named, I think his name's Will Schatzner, or something Schatzner. Um, he, he wrote in the book, Transhumanism in the Image of God, that 90% of field experts believe that this is possible 
by 20, that is probable and possible by 2075. Wow. 50% of them think by 2040. Wow. So if you think internet pornography is bad, wait till adolescents have chips in their brain with the entire access to the internet by 2040. And so the, the difficulty of parenting See, is... It's funny because I hear you say all that and I'm like, come on, Seth, you're educated. You just got a doctorate and that sounds like conspiracy nonsense. Yeah. But you're saying like this didn't, this wasn't some quacky guy who made a YouTube video about something like this is like, yeah, stuff. researchers, philosophers, people are like real people that are, you know, have influence are predicting these. Yeah, they're things. mapping the brains they're scanning the brains they're trying to figure out how to network them. And, but from, for here's the deal, like for us as Christians, like from an evolutionary naturalistic perspective, why not? Yeah, sure. Makes as much sense as anything. Why not? If, so this transhumanism, posthumanism stuff, this is what's going to hit us like crazy in the next 20, 30, 40 years. But it's all dualism. It's all saying you're not your body. You are your brain signals. You are your cognition. You are your thoughts. Uh, and, wow. you, and you can change your body to match your thoughts. And you can upload your thoughts in a different body, match your thoughts. There's an, another Netflix show, I forget it was called like Altered Carbon. Hmm. But you get a skin is what they call it. Okay. And then when you die in that skin, if you have enough money, you can just buy better skin. So all these people, so this was a couple of years ago. This is before yeah. Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner stuff. Uh, people would buy skins of the opposite gender. People would buy skins that were taller and or shorter or tanner or fitter or fatter or yeah. because they wanted to be in a different skin for a while. But the real them was the chip. Huh. And so it's just so normal. I think this overly developed dualism yeah. that the body's nothing, the soul is everything or the mind is everything. Mm. And I think it's just coming like a freight train and trying to think through how all this is a contrast to this biblical view of the body and is going to be a big deal. Yeah. Wow. Well, we are, uh, man, it didn't take long. We're in the deep end of the pool and this is fun, man. I, I, uh, I appreciate the conversation about it and I don't know where exactly we'll go in these next conversations, maybe a little more. I mean, probably, I mean, we've already talked about all these things, right? We're talking about technology. We're talking about the next generation. We're talking about the body. And that's part of it is we can't talk about bodies without technology anymore. Right. Like it's over. Yeah. The technology is into the body yeah. and trying to separate those out is not possible anymore. Yeah. So I think where we'll try to go is just kind of help help us understand some of the highlights of what you've learned and what you've seen and what, what we should be encouraged about, what we should be warned about. And, um, and I'm sure we'll get in these next few episodes into some other practical things that we should be doing as parents, that we should be doing as churches, as, you know, people like that. So, man, thanks and congratulations. We're really proud of you. And um, I think this is going to be a fun ride. So thanks for tuning in to the King and Culture podcast. And uh, we'll see you next time. Have a good week. (laughs) 